All right. Welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. Um, I'm your host, John Larson. I need like a a, a boy with a sign or something over there. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, this it's. I'm still getting used to this. This was in my basement for a lot of years. Um, um, yeah, well, welcome. Uh, we have another. We have a full house tonight. I think all the chairs are full. Um, so Standing welcome everybody coming out. Man. Yeah, and another fabulous panel. Um, first of all, we'll start um, with Jenny. Jenny has um, been working with us for a little while. You're one of our um, all-star therapists. No, correct. Uh, is this your first time on the podcast? It is. Welcome, Jenny. Thanks. And we'll come back um, as we go through the evening and talk about some of the, the things. But you've been working as a therapist. Um, and spe- Well, you do many things, but you have worked with people transitioning out of religion yeah, for a while. Yeah, so I've been doing therapy about seven years and mostly working with people transitioning out of religion in the last two to three years. Yeah, um, it's an interesting line of work. It is. Uh, and we'll talk about it a little bit more. Also with us is um, Thane, one of the um, grandfathers of online <laughs> ex-Mormonism. And um, you, you dispense your own brand of therapy yourself, right, yeah, Thane? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I did want to say I am partially representing the community that I host um, because I don't think that my experience is necessarily representative but I'm hoping to represent my guys. At- well, and, and by that, you, you, you're the you're the moderator in chief of the New Order Mormon um, board. Correct. Um, even though you yourself are not much of a believer, not much of a New Order Mormon. <laughs> but I mean, in all fair, there 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 is um, this sort of meme or thought that everybody becomes an atheist. You you still attend a Christian church, right? I do. Yeah. I do. I uh, uh, attend church with the Baptists. Hmm. Very good. Well, good to have you, Thane. Thanks. Um, and then for the first time on the podcast, my friend Laura. Welcome, Laura. Hi. Um, you you are representing those who go through this process, no? Yes, very much so. Um, you, you've been out of the church for a couple years now, right? Three. Three years. You, you and your husband transitioned together, and you recently relocated to Utah. Just moved here. Um, has, how has that, um, how is that impact, impacted at all? It's been awesome. I love Utah. I, you know... I, I, if you if you live in a ward that you were never attended, you have very little interaction with the Mormons. Actually, they kind of keep to themselves. They're busy. They they're busy little people, <laughs> <laughs> and they're super nice. They're way nice. They're they're very oh, nice. They, they wave nice. and yeah, they they, wave. they will clean up dog poop off your grass and all that stuff. <laughs> they bring you. I I I think um, I've counted twenty different things that have been brought to my home. As my good friend Lindsay says, um, Mormons may not be. Um, kind, but they're nice. <laughs> uh, so, so welcome. All right, as, as has been our tradition since we opened the studio to talk about this week in the news, uh, we have two big stories. Of course, uh, everybody knows there's a huge um, case, a legal case involving the, the, the Mormon church, potentially. Of course, this is um, Sibelius versus Hobby Lobby, which was argued before the U.S. Supreme Court just today. yesterday. Just um, yesterday. Um, of course, today is the 25th of uh, March. Um, and this case really will impact the church um, on a couple of fronts. Of course, the, the case um, grew out of, what was the case? Citizens United. 
Citizens no. United from a couple years ago, where the Supreme Court ruled that money was a form of speech, plain and simple, which made um, any kind of restrictions on campaign financing sort of go out the window. So that has there's been a long tradition, of course, in the legal environment because English common law grew up around individual rights. There's nothing in the Constitution about corporations because there really wasn't much of the idea of a corporation at, at that point. So there's been a long tradition of giving corporations rights that are guaranteed to people. And what um, what Citizens United really went full bore of saying that a corporation is a person and has full freedom of speech rights. Well, with with um, Obamacare. Um, there is, uh, of course, the Affordable Care Act, there is a provision that requires corporations to provide birth control in the form specifically of IUDs is what's pissing off um, Hobby Lobby. Now, anybody who's been to Hobby Lobby knows that it's a very... I thought it, I what, thought it was an plan, IUD funny. No, I thought it was Plan B that they were. Uh, they they don't like either one. Okay. So an, an IUD for for fundamentalists, an IUD prevents um, um, the egg to implant on the uterus. So fundamentalists, um, extremists, will call that a form of abortion because it prevents the the fertilized egg from implanting and thus kills a fetus. Um, in in their in their um, interpretation, zygotes are fetuses. Yes, it's the same yes. thing, right? Um, <laughs> so, so in this case, um, they do not want to um, provide that benefit, that healthcare benefit, to their employees. Um, Sibelius, of course, the um, director of the Health and Human Services, um, and so they're 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 suing on on behalf of the employees. So. Um, Hobby Lobby's stand is as a corporation, as a private for-profit corporation, the corporation itself has freedom of religion. Um, this impacts the church on two fronts. First of all, let's take a little walk down the history of the church and birth control, shall we? Um, <laughs> um, they're, 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 the church... The church has, for a long time, had a tradition of teaching that birth control was wicked and was um, sinful. And there were times when you couldn't get a temple recommend and that sort of thing for, for, for this. The church has never reversed this opinion. Now, liberal Mormons will argue with me because they say, well, the church doesn't say anything about it anymore. They say, have as many children as you're capable of having when consultation with the Lord or whatever. But they've never contradicted the statements that have come from previous prophet seers and revelators publicly. That, are, that publicly, yeah, there, there there are some private letters where they sort of say, "Hey, you can you can do what I, you want." I think it's in the bishop's handbook now, where and and the statement that's in the bishop's handbook is, "Don't ask." Right. Um, but but I, I would say that the church has a long have long labeled it evil, and the church owns private enterprises like Beneficial Life. And if you're an employee of Beneficial Life, you are under the exact same circumstance that an employee of Hobby Lobby is, i.e., the church will not pay for any kind of contraception. Um, so the church will, A, be impacted by this because they've, fallen, they've followed suit and they've, they've um, restricted birth control and any kind of family planning measures to their own employees of their private enterprises. More importantly... The Mormon Church, because it owns so many private businesses or so many, um, you know, for-profit enterprises, and it has its hands in all this stuff, that if this case passes, and potentially how the Supreme Court rules and where the the precedence is, this could give the church leverage to use um, religious influence under all of its private enterprises. 
And the ramifications of this in a secular world are enormous because we have the right to assemble, right? That's guaranteed in the Constitution. You have the right to freedom of speech, and you have the right, um, the right to freedom of press and all these things. But we also have the freedom of religion. So the question is, where does the freedom of religion differ from all these other rights that are guaranteed in the Constitution that you and I as secular people have? Well, the difference is the freedom of religion in the United States allows churches to break the other rules. So as a secular boss, I cannot discriminate against you based on religion. But a religion can. They can discriminate based on religion. So the freedom of religion really has come onto the front where it allows churches to use discriminatory and prejudicial practices in the name of religion. So the freedom of religion really is the freedom to be exempt from other forms of U.S. law. So if this passes, then Hobby Lobby can, as a corporation, adopt a religious position and enforce that religious position on all of its employees. And so the church can do the same thing. The church could potentially, on everything it owns, and it owns a fucking lot of stuff here in the state of Utah, it could potentially call for... Don't you be looking at my swear jar like that. She gives me, a, she gives me the eye signal. <laughs> 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 that, 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 that the, this is one of those cases the ramifications could be enormous. And the, it hasn't gotten a lot of... comp, But, but legal watchers are really watching this one very closely because the Roberts court has been down the path of giving corporations all sorts of rights. And this would allow a private for-profit entity to declare religious belief and then use that as basically a discriminatory practice. The the ramifications could be enormous. What I was just thinking about now is uh, the famous exemption that certain Native American tribes get in the use of peyote because that's a Schedule One drug for everyone else in America. And so there's this kind of weird twist. So we have a precedent where religions get an exemption of a positive sort. This particular religion can do this thing that is otherwise illegal. But we're doing this other thing where this particular religion, religion can... Uh, take away others. Take rights. away this thing that is otherwise legal. It's... Well, as I was researching this, there, there have been a lot of different rulings in the courts over the past 50 years that have been sort of contradictory, which is why this is an important, you know, um, element of, of the rights of religions and religious practice. We'll, we'll see, we'll see how it, um, plays out. Speaking of courts, of course, um, last Thursday, the, um, Tom Phillips case was tossed. Um, Surprise. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, the basic grounds were, and a matter of fact, the, the ruling by the judge was, was fairly scathing. Of course, people outside of Mormonism, I, I, and this kind of goes to the topic tonight. I, I think that a lot of Mormons and ex-Mormons, um, got really involved in the, the Mormon aspect of this case. And I think the rest of the world, I use the example, we went to dinner tonight. Um, I use the example of if you found out that, um, uh, like a, a Buddhist monk over in Denver was suing the chief you know, Lama. What do they call the 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 head monk? The 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 well, that's that's in Tibetan Buddhism. But there's a, there's a, like the abbot or whatever of of the and 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 the grounds were well, Buddhism is obviously false, so it's fraudulent. Everybody reading that case who's not there would be like, well, yeah, we all knew that already. Um, so I think there was, I think there was this, 
ex-Mormon, especially energy, which I understand, I, I can empathize with, that now the world is going to see how fucked up Mormonism is, but the world already knows that. And, and it, it's like that wasn't the interesting part of the case. And I think that kind of blinded the, the fact of saying, if this case goes through and this becomes the new standard for fraud, this has enormous implication, even bigger than the case we were just talking about um, with the Hobby Lobby case. Because um, a lot of people believe a lot of really weird things, right, <laughs> that are demonstrably false. Matter of fact, most people do. And once you open the gate to calling that fraud, oh, man, you think we have a litigious society now, if that case were to get through. But as was expected, the case didn't, the case didn't make it very far. And, and I know there's a lot of people who are cringing all through it because they thought, oh, there's people who are getting so emotionally invested. Once again, I understand where that emotional investment came from, but it was kind of sad to see that, that coming because you looked at the, the surface level of the case and you read the briefs and it's just like, uh, it just wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, but, um, and, and from my perspective individually, you know, I believe in the, the right of, freedom of speech, which is to say stupid things and believe stupid things and all sorts of things, and even to get paid to say and believe stupid things. So um, I, I think that's that's a, a really key element. So um, I, I know that the case itself came from good intentions and the people who were, were after it. Um, there's, there's an element, and we'll get into this again tonight, of of when you find that you're, you have been um, defrauded, when you find you've been duped, it's a natural human instinct to say, Hey guys, there's something going on here, like, like a, a prairie dog signaling that there's a predator nearby. And we have that natural instinct to do that. And I think that, that, that feeling is sort of what drove the case. But, um, I don't think it was, um, well timed or it, it would serve its purpose. This week's episode, on the other hand, is perfectly timed to discuss that. Yeah, so. yeah. And, and we did, we did do a, a change in, in the episode, um, next week. Um, we were going to talk about the ways John Larson disagrees with John Larson, but instead, we, uh, what, what was it that we decided to talk about? You guys are thinking, I don't know. <laughs> That's your thing. Um, oh, now what? So next week, we're going to talk about, um, the, the people f- after leaving the church desire to fix the problem of the church. So we're going to talk about, I've been around for about 10 years. Other people have been around too. We talk about well, what works and what doesn't work. And un- unfortunately, and this isn't just in the realm of ex-Mormonism or whatever, we have a lot of passion and we want to change, but sometimes we don't put our energy into the things that really make a difference. So that's what we're going to talk about next week. All right, so let's talk about identity. I, I, th- I think in our modern society, Identity is something that is more transitory and in a lot of ways more key than it would have been when we were in smaller groups. Because in the smaller group, I mean, we're talking if you lived in a, in a, even in a small town of 500 or a thousand people, your identity was, was, was very well defined in your place in that society and what role you played as you aged, you know, and, and where you were in that society was very tightly spelled out and controlled. And I think for most of human evolution, that would have been the case. That for, for, for most of our history, the idea that you could go to school and be whatever you wanted is a luxury that we've only had for a few short years. I mean, even two or three hundred years ago, if your father was the blacksmith, you know, um, you, you probably didn't have much, you could, you would, 
they would horse trade and have all my boy will apprentice with you and I'll take your boy with me. Even if you were like royalty, the first son would inherit the property, the second son would become a priest, and the third son would go into the, the military. And that was basically it because you didn't have a lot of optionality. And so your identity was sort of sealed from your birth. And I think there, that there's a lot of angst that we have in a modern society about trying to figure that out, that most people just never had the luxury of trying to figure out what they want to do with their weekend, right? That just wasn't, that wasn't an option. So um, Mormonism, um, which I tend to label as a fundamentalist religion because uh, of, of its structures and how it, how it controls people and controls their thoughts, is very tied with identity. And if you think about it, you know, you think about all the elements of the religion what that influence you, your your life, right? Yeah, everything, everything. Uh, uh, who you associate with, um, what clothes you wear, what clothes you can't wear, um, what you eat, even uh, to the point. You know, you grow up in Utah. In Sandy is the uh, example you love to use. <laughs> if you grow up in Sandy, Utah, um, you know uh, people that live within four blocks of you, and if they live five blocks from you, you don't know them because they're not in your ward, right? So I don't, I can't think of any place other than a very small town. I can't think of any other culture that, that, uh, that constrains, uh, people's, um, social choices so much. Yeah. And, and uh, you both went to young women's, right? Oh yeah. And so the, the pattern, the seance or whatever it is that you guys go go through. I mean, it was very much about establishing your identity in relationship to yeah. this organization. We are daughters of our, yeah, the whole, mm-hmm. yeah. And as a single woman in her 30s, there was a lot of information about what you were allowed to feel happy about and what you should feel guilty and sad about wow. or pitied for. Absolutely. And you, you look at what a religion does. I mean, the first thing, you know, it's, it's sort of like the SS Panzer attack. We had to get the Nazi reference out early. <laughs> that the, is early. The, the first it's, thing it's you do. Nazi, though. Are, 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 <laughs> or what, what do they say in that, that stupid Star Wars movie? Oh, a communication disruption. That can only mean one thing. Invasion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the first thing you do is you go after funerals and you go after, you birth death, marriage. If you want to get a religion, that's the first thing you're going to go after because you are going to co-opt the major elements that define who we are and what defines you more than those three things, your marriage and your birth and your death. And you're going to take over those um, in a way that, 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 that puts the identity of your relationship to the church or your relationship to the culture as primal in that, in that element. I've, I've said this before, but secular societies and those things coming after have dropped the ball because they haven't provided anything on this front. The other things that religions do is they're excellent at taking care of the disenfranchised, right? Um, and, and helping people who have times of need. And let's face it, we're all going to die, and we're going to talk about that more in a bit. But, but you're going to go through some tough times in your life. And I have seen in the 10 years I've been doing this, people who I would have never expected to go back to church go back to church and it's oftentimes when when trouble falls and that's when the churches shine that's when they're in their element and that's when they come in and can establish that identifying role that cultural um support that we, that we all need while you're while we I was in the church you know with this strong identity they they kind of helped me shape like 
they told me how wonderful I was. I was a chosen generation. I was, so I felt so special in the church. So that, that's, that's how I felt growing up, special right. for some reason. Because your role, your identity was associated with the church. But even more fundamentally, every time you eat, right, who you have sex with, right, um, um, what you do in the morning, you, you, you pray, you read the scriptures before you go to bed. So the church, what it does is it invades all the personal elements of your life. And it, it, it makes sure that you're always thinking about your relationship to the, to the church. I mean, think about it. For, for, I, I would guarantee that 90% of the people in this room, the first time they kissed somebody else, the, the, somewhere in the head, your head was going through some kind of thought about your relationship to the church. The church had programmed you. So uh, that when you're having these, these, I don't think so. Maybe I was doing it wrong. <laughs> I said the first thought, not the second or third or fourth thought. Um, but, 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 the, you know, the, 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 the shame and guilt cycles that people feel after, uh, after. You're right. It was after. Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I didn't feel that much shame or guilt. Wait, I'm confused. Lucky. After kissing someone? Yeah. Was I supposed to, I, I didn't After think about the church. church. No, I'm, I'm talking about the, the, the church. The like chur- in high school, you kiss somebody, you oh, think, oh, I shouldn't have been doing when that. When you're a teenager, okay. these, these shame cycles that people were feeling. Okay. Now, there are people who escaped it, but, but oftentimes... Perhaps, yeah, I can see that. Now. Oftentimes, you know, you, you, you feel a little booby, and then you're... you're, you're <laughs> you go and confess, and you're going to have these months and months of these shame cycles, right? Which is a, which is a perfectly natural... It's natural to... Right? <laughs> that makes sense. That's different than kissing oh, okay. in the Mormon well, I, world. I yeah, I, I, yeah. But You're a little more than kissing. It's not all just about sex, you guys. Come on. <laughs> it's also about food. And food is co-opted by religion, right? Um, and, and your sense of identity, your sense of, of um, every element of that um, just, just, just gets taken in. Look, take like family home evening. The church will take and take away people's time. And then they'll say, oh, now you need to go give back your time to your family. But now you're doing it through our auspice. Yeah, now you're, you're doing, doing it. it you're using it's our manual. Night. It's family night. So you can be with your family now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the church won't well, take and, it to anything on and Monday it's nights. like we could go camping, but uh, now you can go with the Boy Scouts and go camping because it's church camping now. Yes. And it's not family camping. Exactly. Right. And, and look at how ingenious it is. Now, I don't believe that religions were designed. I believe they, involve, they evolved. But almost all religions have dietary restrictions, arbitrary dietary restrictions. What does that do? Well, every time you run into that dietary restriction, you, you know, you're at a company meal, you say, I'm sorry, I can't eat the pork sandwich. Or it's Friday, I'm going to eat fish. It's reinforcing that identity that you have of being separate from everyone else and and then having that um, connected to your your in group. Right? So I just I want to take issue a little bit with what you're saying. Oh. <laughs> um, yes. Well, I think I think you talk about the church and how our identities are defined by that. But I think a lot of us, when we leave the church, we realize that our identities are defined very much by the individual relationships we had within that institution. And I know that's why so many of our experiences are different and we and we are interested in hearing each other's stories because in the same institution or the church, in quotation marks, we all have these different experiences. And so you talk about the church doing this to us, but I think our parents and our families and the authority figures that we had in our lives all taught us different things about these values and the way we perceive the world. And I think it's important to 
recognize, especially when you're, if we're talking about leaving, that it's so much more about our, our self-identity and the relationships with the individuals within the institution and not the institution itself. Because there's this thing, the church, that is very separate from the individuals that that help distill or instill those values on us. Yeah, but I would I would take issue even with you taking issue because <laughs> of course with, you would with your issue taking. So uh, so here's my issue. I think uh, what you're saying is true, but I think that there are a few um, uh, templates uh, for your experience in the church. So there's one template if you're the bishop's son or the bishop's daughter. There's another template if the, you know, most important person in your family is your mother, uh, which, which was the case in my family. You know, my mother was the Relief Society president for literally the first 15 or 16 years of my life. She was always Relief Society president. Um, so, you know, obviously I had a different, uh, uh, template of, of, uh, growing up in the church. And then, you know, if you're, um, in the church because you've got, you know, some mildly damaged alcoholic that's, that's taking refuge in the church, that's another template. But I think that there's very few templates of, of behavior, uh, inside the church. And so, yeah, there, there are a bunch of different kinds of Mormons. But not that many different uh, kinds. Well, also personality, because I think of the difference between me and my sisters who were raised, we're very close in age, raised in the same young women's, same parents, and we're, we're different. I was a nurturer, and I loved children, and I loved babysitting, and my sisters didn't. I took that theology of, you need to be a mother, you, this is your, you need to find a man and get married and be a mother. Those were the most important things, and I took it very seriously. My sisters didn't. So, personality kind of plays into that like what who you are can make can make it worse or better for you yeah and even though there's there are so many well maybe some differences and then you have the temperaments i've been amazed at how many people myself included was clear when i left the church that i could find certain things outside of the church so i could still live a physically healthy life outside of the church but then you leave and all of a sudden you like feel confused about how to do it. And so I've been amazed at how, you know, wherever you are, I guess maybe different people will have different issues, but it's like, okay, well, how do I live a healthy life outside of the church? If that matters to me, or how do I experience relationships outside of the church? If monogamy matters to me, it all of a sudden became really confusing to me, even though right before I left, I was really clear that I could still maintain what mattered to me outside. I just like didn't know how to navigate it without the community and the rule well, structure. Is I, think, I think Jen has a good point because there's two things we're talking about. We're talking about this church structure, which gets imposed on us, meaning your relationships. The church wants to define those. The church wants to say, this is your Sunday school teacher. This is your scout master. This is the bishop. These are the adults that you're allowed to 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 interact with and it, it has a script this is how you interact with a with a with um, a bishop and it tries to enforce that on the youth this is this is what you can do at 14 this is what you can do at 16 this is how you interact with the boys this is how you interact with the girls but there's also this element jen of of the culture of this cultural identity now my my aunt passed away last year and it was fascinating for me to go back to one of the funerals and see how much um, you know, even though everybody at the funeral was, was family, this was about a family relationship. 
But the whole thing was about the church, the hymns and the structure. Even the, you know, her, her sons, which had all been bishops and stuff, just fell into this script, this narrative, this meme of how they talked as bishops. So, so even though we do have these individual relationships, there, there's a, there's a culture that prescribes how those are. And there's an identity that comes from that. And we, we joke about the, the Jack Mormons. That, that the biggest crowd in Utah are these Jack Mormons. That's absolutely true. But they still, the difference between those guys and ex-Mormons is Jack Mormons hold this identity um, of, of being Mormon, even though they might do all sorts of things, right? Um, that's the smile that I have when I try to decide if I should actually say what I'm about to say. <laughs> <laughs> I have had the opportunity in the past, um, you know, a year or so of being on dating sites in the, in the state of Utah. Um, the, 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 the Mormon girls, I shouldn't say girls, women, these are middle-aged women. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Keep going. They, the, the, you first say hi first, and the second thing they tell you is that they put out. Um, and, but they'll explain it in this very convoluted way, um, because, you know, you put, I'm an atheist or whatever on your profile, and, but I, I, I feel sorry, because there's, I, um, all indicators point to there's not a lot of available Mormon men in the single scene at mid, you know, 40 years old. And, but my, my, my point is, I've talked to, um, people like this, and, they they don't have a problem disobeying the commandments of the church, um, even though we're we're talking about that. And this this really gets to the ex Mormon personality a little bit more. But that giving up that Mormon identity to them is so ingrained. Even though they can discard all these different behaviors, you know, they can drink coffee and drink alcohol and they can fool around on dating sites and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't bother them. But they're not going to discard that Mormon identity because it's so key to who they are. Yeah. All right, Jen nodded at me, so I, I passed. <laughs> we can move on. Now. Okay, so what what happens um, is there, there's an event we've talked about a lot in the podcast. There's some kind of event that dislodges somebody from their from their faith, and I love to quote Tal Bach, Bachman on this. That says he he said at one point that generally all you have to do is decide the church could possibly not be true, and that's sufficient. Once you figure out that it could pop, then all of a sudden it makes sense. It's, it's like this crystallizing <laughs> of event. Cause once you figure it might not be true, it's like, oh my God, that, that it, is, it all comes clear. It all, it all, it's all perfectly. <laughs> so there's this, this event and what, it, there's usually an emotional buildup that leads to it or an intellectual buildup or usually a combination of both that, that has that event. But, but you still are carrying like a, like a big freight train going 90 miles an hour into that event, your Mormon identity. So whatever reason that, that, that will fall apart, this, this belief, this literal fundamentalist belief in the church disintegrates, oftentimes very quickly. Um, sometimes it's a slower burn, but even then it's usually months or, or years, a year as opposed to like 10 years. Um, then what do you do with this Mormon identity? And it's not such an easy question. What the, the most common um, refrain from people who are not Mormons when they talk about ex-Mormons, is they say they're no different. They're, they're indistinguishable, except they just reverse their polarity. They just reverse their actions. And if you go to parties where there's, there's, there are ex-Mormons, especially ones who are fresh out of the church or these social gatherings, there is an element that from an outsider that looks fake. It looks like 
they're but it's not fake it's it's people trying to redefine this identity and unfortunately what happens to us all including myself is you don't know how to escape from that identity but you sure as hell know how to reverse it. Well, Mormons don't drink coffee. I'm going to drink coffee. But the, the coffee tastes bitter. Say, ooh, I'm going to try something else. So they, they try, oh, a bourbon. Oh, bourbon. Oh, that's awful. Then they, disco- <laughs> then they discover vodka. And if they pour enough sugar in it. <laughs> so you'll see these big plastic. If you guys see these big plastic four-liter bottles. Yeah. Of, they must sell the a lot. Big the big with vodka in it, yeah. Um, yeah. Because they, there's so much want to shed that identity by just simply not doing what it was they were doing before. So right. the first phase of, of Mormon identity is that one that's ingrained into you. And the second phase is this thrash against that identity and without really knowing how to escape it. This is your moment to shine. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing. No, it's all right. So, so, um, so the ex-Mormon identity really becomes a function of that identity and trying to figure out what their boundaries are. And there's a, there's a healthiness to this that doesn't appear to be so. After watching a lot of people go through this, they go through this, this adolescence. But it looks worse than it is because these are people who, for the most part, keep their day job and still keep being um, good parents. And there's a lot of people who say, oh, well... I wish that I would have done all this crazy shit in college. There's a lot of people who drop out of college because they do too much crazy shit. I mean, there's, there's, there's the, the washout rate is pretty high. And, and, um, if you start smoking pot when you're 40, the odds that it's going to negatively impact your life are a lot less than if you start smoking pot when you're 17. So, um, so, but, but what tends to happen is people go through this phase and I would say the, the mean is about six months. And I remember right before I moved to um, to North Carolina, I had I had some friends that, that there was a party at, at, at my house. It was right before we moving, and the kitchen island. All these people show up. And there's just like forty or fifty bottles. And Thane, you've seen this at, at I've party, seen this where there's once, just yes. bottles and bottles and bottles. And like you can't put the food down because there's too much booze. There's, it's just it's just a lot of alcohol. <laughs> and because people are ooh look, there's this one and this one's shiny and this one and. and <laughs> But and I transitioned outside of Utah without any ex-Mormons around. And that's how the parties were anyway. Well, uh, depending on the party. But I, I think uh, the, the key to what John's trying to say is that if if you've been Mormon all your life and now you've decided that you're not Mormon, you still don't know who you are. And so you, your identity is un-Mormon, right? Yeah. And so I'm going to do everything yeah. un-Mormon. But... In true Mormon uh, fashion, um, we're we're so energetic <laughs> that we end up being energetically unMormon, and so we drink everything, we smoke everything, we sleep with everyone, we get ten you know, tattoos. Yeah, we get tattoos, we get piercings, we you know we wear slutty clothes, we do everything <laughs> as energetically as we can because we got to do it all right now. Because we're taking that all Mormon right now. mindset to tattoos and piercings and right. sex. Right, right, right. Which is which doesn't have a good sense of moderation. Um, <laughs> exactly. But, and in my story, the same group of people. Six Boundaries. months later, we got together, and they were all just like sipping wine and eating cheese. And, and you, saw, <laughs> you saw the same group of people go through this transition, and that transition happens most often. And 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 hopefully, you don't pick up too many um, bad habits or ugly tattoos or STDs. STDs or whatever. <laughs> 
Um, but, but the people who come out the other side, um, I probably shouldn't admit this, but I don't really like hanging out with ex-Mormons. Um, and, <laughs> but I like hanging out with people who are former ex-Mormons. <laughs> um, and those are my people because they've transitioned out of it. And there's a difference that the ex-Mormons don't get. They don't, they don't see it yet. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, we all slip back into these modes. For the rest of your life, there will be mornings when you wake up and you have a pining to go back and be a member of the church. It'll happen to you. You're not wrong. You're not defective. That will happen. There can be a cure, too, for that. When I, I was seriously depressed one day. It was maybe a year after we left. And my therapist, who was not... I, I shouldn't have gone to this one because she thought, she kept telling me I should go back to church, that the whole reason why I was upset is because of church and I should go back to church. So I thought, I got to go back to church. It's, uh, it's what I'm missing in my life. I went back to church, um, one Sunday. My husband was very supportive of me and was kind of excited. And I came back and I said, <laughs> I'm so glad we left the church. I will never go back again. And he said, I thought that would happen. So go back to church. If you, if you want to, do it. It was, um, <laughs> it's a cure. it was probably 2010 or so. It wasn't that long ago where I went back to church for a baby blessing. I'd avoided them. And for the first 15 minutes, I was, just, I was singing the hymns. I was sitting there in the chair because it hadn't changed, right? It was exactly the same. Uh, and I thought, I thought, oh my God, I might be pulling back. But by the end of that sacramenting, I bolted. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> Matter of fact, I think I left before the closing prayer. <laughs> I think I just left. It took, it took that long. But everyone should do it every once in a while, you know. It's like I worried when my kids were small that my parents would indoctrinate. My parents are wonderful people. They would never do that. It was a worry. Now I just tell them, go ahead, try to take those little shits to church if you want. <laughs> it's not going to take. See how that you works. have to, you have to try to, it, it's not, it's not easy to get people to do church. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the nice one. things about going through the process is it gives you a chance to start to learn how to get a feel for what do I want to experience? What do I want to try? And how do I tell the difference between wanting to try an experience and feeling like I'm supposed to or there's pressure to? Because that was one thing that was a little tricky for me. So I loved how you said, if you want to go back to church, go back to church. And, you know, giving yourself that space, if I want to try something, maybe I will, maybe I won't. But, um, I mean, I remembered leaving and feeling pressured to try alcohol before I was ready. And I remember feeling pressured to do certain things and feeling shame that I wasn't drinking. And I'm like, weird, I could feel shame that I am drinking or I could feel shame that I'm not drinking. So the shame wasn't so much around the right thing. I started to see as it is about how do I deal with the pressures of whatever kind of structure I'm belonging to, whatever community I'm in, how do I begin to feel that sense of what do I actually want to explore and experiment with? I think I think that's really key. And we... we joke like all ex-Mormons are sluts. <laughs> I, I think that actually ex-Mormons feel more shame around the fact that they're not, um, that, the, that they feel a pressure, a, this kind of cultural social pressure just to get out there and sleep with everybody, and they actually don't. And I think there's this inversed 
polarity of shame saying, well, I'm supposed to be going out and just sleeping around, but I don't really want to. And it takes until that third phase that we're going to talk about a little bit before people get comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's where that's, that's the difference between everybody in the world has cultural identity. The problem is when you have a fundamentalist cultural identity, you lose yourself in it. And this is that element we talk about a lot where people get up in sacramenting saying, if it wasn't for the church, I'd be out raping. <laughs> and they say, they say that, right? That's, I don't make yeah. that up. There are people who killing. listen to this podcast who've never been in a Mormon church, and I promise I do not make this shit up. Um, Sleeping so, around, raping everybody, killing yeah, babies. And, and it's not because they're actual rapists. It's because they they lose any sense of self-identity and, and, and self-borders. And and when that element gets out into this, this ex-Mormon thing, and let's be clear, who are the ex-Mormons? What's the differentiation between the ex-Mormons and the Jack-Mormons? The ex-Mormons are the people who took it seriously. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and one time, I, had, I think I've said this before, I had an apologist who accused me of taking it all too seriously. And he was right. Because if I hadn't, then I would have just Jack-Mormoned off. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> okay, I feel like I'm getting up to give testimony, but... <laughs> um, I'm a software developer and I flew a lot and when I first started flying after I left the church I, people next to me would say like are you from Utah and I'm like yes I'm from Utah are you Mormon and I would have to explain this thing to him and it was super complicated and, and I didn't want to explain it to him uh, ultimately I decided to, to answer them like yes I am Mormon I am part of that culture you know I don't believe in God but I am Mormon I can't deny it anymore I you know, oh, they're my people. And so I kind of embraced it and decided to step past that part and say, hey, you know, I am who I am. <laughs> yeah, I always say I was raised a Mormon. When people like, oh, you're I, from Utah. Like when I lived outside of Utah, people say, oh, you're from Utah. So you're a Mormon. I said, oh, I was raised a Mormon. Which, thank you to the Catholics, they already paved that way for us. That, that has, <laughs> Jews yeah, also, right? That, that has right, meaning right, in the yeah. U.S. culture to say, I was raised Everybody knows what that means. And, yeah, and I've actually done that both ways. And, and I've spent quite a few hours on airplanes talking to strangers. And um, for most of the time that I did that, I would say, yeah, I'm Mormon. No, I only have just the one wife and all those questions. <laughs> but, you know, it gets so tedious that it, at the end they'd say, where are you from? And I'd go, Idaho. <laughs> Because it's so much easier, and they don't have a follow-up question except for like, "Do you know how to ride a horse?" And yes, and that's a, and that's actually a more interesting conversation. So, so one enters this stage, and they they pass through it very very pretty quickly. And one of the things that the, one of the first things that people start to learn is that they own their own decisions. And I think one of the most beautiful things that I discovered on on my journey was the sacredness of consequence. Which is realizing that actions have consequence that are oftentimes intrinsic. Sometimes they're arbitrary, but usually they're predictable. And those consequences are not because somebody in the sky hates you or loves you or whatever. They're, they are implicit in the action. And once you start to understand that, you realize that I can do A, B, or C. And likelihood, these will be, these will be the outcomes. And then you start to own that. And I think that's the transition from that ex-Mormon phase to the next healthier phase. And I was thinking it about something right before you said that, just the idea of how vulnerable that is, especially in our relationships, either with ourselves or with other people. But 
I mean, I think about times I would date people and sometimes it would end because someone would say, I really, really like you, but I pray about it and it doesn't feel right. So like there's this putting blame on your choices and where they're coming from. But when you really start to own, yeah, this is what I'm feeling and this is what I'm choosing. There's, there's a, I don't know. It can be really scary when you've been putting that responsibility for choice on something else for a period of time. So I think it can take time to really start to step into what that feels like to be that vulnerable and just allow people to respond to you how they will, whether it's rejection or, or closeness. I didn't really have a alcohol, sex, those kind of faith like that. My big thing as a yes. Mormon mother was when I went through this phase was, was every decision I made my decision really? Would I have married my husband? Would I have had children? Did I make that decision or did the church make that for me? I, you know, I met my husband and three months later we were married. Classic Mormon story. Did I make that decision? And I doubted everything. Like maybe I should get a divorce because maybe that wasn't really love. Maybe I shouldn't have, maybe I should have had a career. Did I do everything wrong? And then coming out of that was important for me. The realizing I wanted to be a mother. That wasn't the church, just the church. Yeah, it had some influence, but owning that decision and, and being like, now I get to choose what my life is going to be from here on. You yeah, know? yeah I, I think that's true. And the reason church and religion is so useful to a lot of people is it reduces ambiguity. The, the world is a really ambiguous, ambiguous place. And most of the time, the outcomes are not clear. And what the church does, it gives you these, these ways of ignoring a lot of things. This is what you can and can't eat. This is what you do on your Sundays. This is what you, you know, when you feel this certain way, that means you get married and it's marriage is eternal. You keep working through it. So, so oftentimes people learn that they have to say, well, I don't have to stay with this jerk or whatever. Um, or I can stay with them, but there's no, there's no textbook answer. There's no flipping to the back of the book. So, so can we call that modeling? Because I, I feel like the church provides you a model. You know, the yeah, first yeah. eight years of your life, you're getting ready to be baptized. And then the next 10 years, you're getting ready to go on your mission. And then you're getting ready to be married in the temple. And then you're getting, you're having kids. And then you're, you know, becoming elders, quorum president. But there's a model, right? Your, your whole life is planned. Well, maybe not planned, but you know, you know where you're going, right? You've got the path, you, it's all written down and you've got it all figured out. And so I think that the, the problem with the transition to the ex-Mormon phase is I don't have a model. I'm going to reject that model. Right. And even if I did have a model, like, uh, you know, my neighbors, uh, my non-Mormon neighbors, um, they have a model for normal life. But I don't know what that is because I've been ignoring them for my entire life, right? So, so this is the confusion. You know, you, who the heck are you if you're not Mormon? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just to kind of comment on that, and, and some what I've observed is, you know, a big part of establishing an identity does come down to decision making and, and what kind of choices we're going to make in life. One part of the model that the church offers is this notion of certainty that we have this Holy Ghost, we have this. Uh, we have these, you know, the truth, uh, you know, safety and peace is found within the confines of the church. And when you step out of that, you realize very quickly that there really is no certainty anywhere in the world. And any decision you're going to make, there is no forward looking. And owning consequences, part of that's owning the fact that you've got to make decisions at every time with imperfect information. I find a lot of people that, that kind of step out, they're still trying to find ways to find that certainty. You know, where do where, I, I'm not going to make a decision. I'm going to be stuck because... I've got to find certainty somewhere that I can, before I make a move to 
whatever the next decision point is. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to put it. And, you know, Laura, you brought up that, yeah, you went to parties and they were the same way. What happens generally by the time people meet their 30s or 40s is they've settled into a groove of what kind of people they, they like to be around, what kind of social interactions they like to have. But because somebody gets kind of violently jerked out of the church, they have no idea what that is. And this is part of that six month, month phase is that you'll, you'll go to some of these like parties or whatever. And suddenly you're meeting with people across a socioeconomic spectrum that you'd never encountered before. Now the church in a lot of ways is good this way because it, it, it puts people together who might, if you happen to live in the same, you know, stake or whatever. But, but suddenly you're, you're, you don't know. You don't know what you like to do at parties. You don't know, um, who you like to hang out with. And, and America is a great big wide place. And there, there are groups of people in any city who do whatever you want to do. If, if, if you like to drink tea with your pinky up, Fine. There's a group of people who do that. If you like to swing, there's people who do that in, in every place in the United States. And the problem is that, that the people coming out of the church don't know. And all they have is this model that they have now rejected. They, and, and oftentimes they will be oversweeping in that rejection of the model. If the church says it's good, it must be bad and vice versa. Um, you know, so, so, so it's, it's then the, 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 the processing, the deconstructing of that line of thinking where the magic happens. And it seems like those who end up going back do so because they either don't find a model that is better than what they had, or they just really aren't able to create something. And I think that's a real reality. If we don't see options, sometimes we really can't create another way. And so I think really getting out and exploring, reading, learning from other people who've been through it, or even from other religions, like that was really helpful for me in piecing together new models. I, I, I think so. I think identity really is a function of meaning. What our lives mean and what they mean to us and how we interact with the world. So you really have two options. You can have that meaning and identity given to you, which is what most people in the world opt for. They want somebody to say, this is your meaning. And when people talk about the search for meaning, they're searching through all these different models to find one they gel with. Or you can take the enlightened approach, which is there is no fucking meaning out there, so I have to make it, right? I have to supply my own meaning in this world. That is a very wonderful way to live, but it's turbulent. It's hard because when you fail, there's no safety net at this point. There's no redemption. There's no Jesus guy who's going to come make everything all right at the end. You know, if you lose all your money and die in poverty, guess what? You died in poverty. There's no golden gates waiting for you at the other side. And, and that thought is too hard to swallow. And one of the transitions that I've had over the years is there was a time in my life where, like a lot of people, I wanted to see the church, um, the, the people leave the church. But now I understand, although I think the church is bad and it's a net negative, Many, many people are incapable of constructing those identity models for themselves, which is one of the reasons, like, I obviously pushing now um, for people to reach out and find these, like, these workshops and therapeutic things, because identifying your own identity is not an easy course. And there's, unfortunately, very few resources out there that help people on it. You're kind of on your own. Jen. This is where I make the Whitefield sales pitch. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I just want to implore people, I think you guys have talked about the folks that are going back, um, that, that 
can't find an identity outside of that. And, and um, over the last, you know, five, ten years, as as we've been involved in in ex Mormon communities and with those issues, um, I just want to let people know that are listening that aren't here or you know or that are not in Utah that that there are especially with the internet now that the social networking um, allows us to find communities where where you can find a fit outside of religion and with Whitefields with what you're doing here. Um, you can come down here and meet people that have been out three months, that have been out 15 years. And and um, over the years, we've met a lot of people that, that we don't get along with. You go to a dinner party, and you're like, wow, that's not my crowd. And then and then you meet um, people that are your crowd. And, and there are huge opportunities, a lot of people out there in the same situation that you are if you're making that transition. And it's it's just like high school, just like junior high. We're talking about that kind of going through adolescence, where you've got to find the group that you fit. But but uh, don't don't go back right away because you haven't found it. Because there are, are so many people out there looking for those individual relationships that I referred to before, that are are trying to find that identity and self confidence that that will help you through it. Absolutely. And, and it seems like you can start finding identity. Right away, and I think even when we're in the church, we're all we're constantly, on some level, I think seeking for who we really are. So I think that's always happening throughout our life, trying to make meaning. Um, but now I've lost my train of thought. But you were saying something about oh, I think too, really honoring that there is a grieving process that happens. And even though I noticed myself wanting to jump into identities and find friendships right away, and when I would try that and it would fail and I would just feel disconnected, I found often it was helpful to just step back and be alone for a while. And I spent, I mean, a fair amount of time just kind of holed up for, you know, a year or so watching movies, trying to figure out what interests me. Um reading things, talking to close friends and roommates, if you have any. I mean, so I think it was a balance between getting out there and trying to find things and also stepping back and saying, I'm in a lot of pain right now, and I need to be okay that there's a grieving process going on here. Yeah, I do think you need to acknowledge and, and expect that there's going to be discomfort. Um, and, and, and I experienced the same thing, uh, you know, looking for my own identity. And so I spent some time looking for my own religious identity, uh, post-Mormonism. And, you know, I wandered in and out of a, a handful of churches, you know, four or five or, I don't know, a lot. It seems like a lot. And, and, you know, um, uh, I would walk into a church that my best friend just loves and he's so excited about it. And, um, and, and, you know, I loved bits and pieces of it, and I really didn't love bits and pieces of it. And it took me years, you know, probably a couple, two or three years to, to kind of um, uh, come to peace with my religious identity, such as it is. Why are you smirking? I just put $20 in the swear jar. Because <laughs> you're about There's to go on a tirade. There. There's a hundred down there. Yeah, the, the, this is a filthy mouth. John, John's about to go on a tirade about my religious identity. No, no, I, I, we, I, we did the same thing as a family. We went to probably four, four, maybe just four churches. Yeah, and found I, one we loved, and we went to one for a good 
two years. Yeah, I, yeah. I spent six years in and out of the Unitarian Church, and it, it was did. it was part of that. Um, that's that search for identity. So let's, I, let's get to the good part. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just want to reiterate it's it's going to be uncomfortable. It, yeah. Even if you because I was a New things. Order Mormon, or yeah. called myself a New Order Mormon for right. five years. Right. And I thought it's time this is we can easy. leave. Yeah. We're fine. And, and we it, left, and it was hard. And I yeah. think it, I didn't think it would be hard. And if you can give yourself some space to sit back and just be quiet with nothing for a bit, it seems like that gives space for things to show up, too. I think so. But there are things that impact that quietness that you're talking about. The Internet and social networks uh, is what has made all of this possible. What we're, what we're doing here and this sort of secular response to the church outside of evangelicalism was not possible 20 years ago. That being said, the reason cocaine works... <laughs> because it is friggin' awesome. Is <laughs> because you have all these neuron receptors that evolve for other reasons. But when you take, when you inject those chemicals, it excites those those things in in, in a way that your brain really isn't evolved to handle, and it throws it over the top, and it, it'll start these cycles of addiction, or it can. Um, at the very minimum, if you don't get addicted to things like that, you have up and down cycles. You're going to go up, and then you're going to crash. Um, the, the online social networks are very similar. They are a surrogate for, um, for this sort of interaction, but they're not that interaction themselves. And they can have that same sort of addictive element that people get addicted to substances that's sort of an, an, an a self-medication in terms of looking for the social interaction or looking for identity. And they have some real negative byproducts. For example, one that I encounter is that people who post things on boards, echo chambery sort of circle jerk boards, which I do, feel like they're doing something. <laughs> Like they feel like they're making a change in the world, or making a lot of friends, but, or making a lot of friends. But they, I mean, or saying something. Sometimes original. you're not. I don't know anybody, and I feel like I know all these people online. I have met. <laughs> yeah, you feel like, oh, look at me. I have two thousand three hundred forty-four <laughs> Facebook friends, right? Um, and 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 it's and I'm not condemning those things, but those things are a stepping stone to building identity and making real relationships. They are not those things in and of themselves. It's fake. It's a fake identity and it's a fake relationship. And if you become too dependent on those, you don't, you're not able to, to build these things out. Dating has changed, um, now with texting, which can be um, a supplement because it's easy to say, I think you're cute. He, he, he on a text where that's harder <laughs> to say to somebody in real life, even if you're 60 years old, right? And so, and so what, what, it, what these online sort of things do is they allow us. <laughs> Well, how do you do it? <laughs> winky, winky face. <laughs> um, but they allow for these things to grow really quickly, but very shallow, right? Um, and, 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 and that impacts all of, all of our, our relationships. So unfortunately, where, where some people get lost in this, this pursuit of, of a real identity is to get too caught up into these online networks. Which, once again, can be extremely valuable, but as a transitional point and not as an end point. Because you're going to have to sort of meet these people in, in real life and start building real social structures and a real identity outside of just posting nasty shit about the church. Do most people, I mean, for me, I eventually got sick of them. I mean, I deleted, because um, I was on a ton. 
I del- just deleted them all. And then I kind of started slowly adding some more back on. Does that seem fairly normal? They, you know, I've, I've always said, and I, I think you agree, uh, the, the boards themselves really have like a new personality every six months. And it's because of that that mix of people. Pe- most people tend to transition out. Yeah, the, the half-life, maybe a year. But the, the half-life of membership on, on the board is, is about a year. But now, I know people leave and then come back. Like there's one lady who's, who's on a lot, and she just came back. And she says, I'm back, you know? Like, it seems like that's what the kind of happens. You, you leave, and then you're like, ah, then you go back. Well, they yeah, serve a yeah. purpose, mm-hmm. right? And, and it's a real valuable purpose. But, it, but it, can, it can interfere with this establishing your own identity, your own place in the world that is a comfortable and psychologically healthy place. That, that's, that's my point. Not that they're, they're bad in of themselves. It's kind of like you know junk food. It, it's fine to have every once in a while. But if that's what you're living on, it's not a healthy way to go. And it can make you more negative too. I I find when I look at them, I I hate the church a whole lot more than I hate it normally. And you start seeing it everywhere. You do, and, and then and then you stop looking at it, and you're like, oh, I don't see it. I don't even have anything to do with it anymore. So I don't need to even think about it. So my first piece of advice is take a step back from the computer a bit, right? And and use those things as a, as a transitional element to find. A, and and a, there's a lot of really great groups out there doing this. And so these things exist out there. You don't have to, if, if you live any, in any city where there's a lot of Mormons, um, you live in Phoenix or you live in Portland or you live in Seattle, there's already groups of people that you can meet. And, and don't get your expectations up too high. Again, because there's going to be a lot of people that you're not going to necessarily gel with, and that's okay. You know, it's been pointed out that the ex-Mormons tend to break into cliques. And my response is, as it should be, because it's not normal to maintain 50 close friends. You're going to find a smaller group of people that you're comfortable with who are like you, and and that's who you're going to sort of gel with. And that's where you're, you're using these resources for, for good. And I, I think that, um, you know, again, falling back on these contrasts, when the church tells you who your 300 friends are because they live within three blocks of you, um, you know, it's, it's easy to make the same mistake that, uh, the, your, your, your friends when you leave Mormonism are the 300 Facebook friends that are, that are trashing the church because, you know, they, they think the same way that I do. Well, guess what? There's a lot of people out there and guess what? A lot of those, you know, 300 people in that forum are idiots. <laughs> you know? <laughs> There's a lot of idiots and, and, you know, there's a lot of drunks and there's a lot of assholes and there's mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people that you're not, you know, gonna, gonna want to hang out with. And if you'll let me take it a step further, I think that, um, cause, cause you were talking about, you get into this, uh, you know, you start trying to make the, the third transition and you still don't know where you're going. And, and, uh, and, and so you just attack the church. And I think, you know, for me, it, it's it's hard for me to remember when I was there, but I know that I was there because you know I have you know fifteen hundred posts on Flack to to prove that I was an angry ex Mormon <laughs> once upon a time. But um, uh, I I think maybe a trick for that is to uh, kind of try and see yourself a year from now or two years from now. You know, is this really what I am still going to be saying two years from now? Does this still make sense two years from now? Because if it doesn't, maybe it doesn't make sense today. You know, all this anger or all this, uh, um, you know, the, the the feeling of being put upon, you know, that, that the church has taken all this stuff away from me. Am I still going to feel so hurt a year from now? Well, Probably and, not. And and to that point, I know a lot of the psychological research <clears throat> that I've 
read lately suggests that catharsis is not a real thing. That um, going through and going through an angry phase, or you know, there was like therapy for couples therapy for a while, like twenty years ago, they had punch pillows and stuff like that. <laughs> and now the research is showing that that creates the rage situation rather than dispels it. That it's better to let those things go or replace them with more positive thinking than to try to work through it. And these online forums can sometimes be these echo chambers that are actually creating what they purport to be dispelling. Right. I, I've had a great experience with, not great, I shouldn't say great, but my family's been fine. They haven't been wonderful, but my parents love me. We see them almost every Sunday. We see my mother-in-law every, at least twice a week. We have great relationships. But I'll tend to, when I look on the forums, be like, everybody's left me. Everybody's, you know, doesn't love me anymore. And then I think about it. I'm like, no, that's that person's experience Mm. because I'm reading somebody else who's saying my mother won't talk to me anymore. And I sympathize with that because, and, and then I think, look at what the, look what's happening. Cause I left the church. People aren't even talking to me, but I haven't had that experience. So why am I, but I, I take their experience and put it on myself in a way. I I think you're, but you're, you're, I think that's true, but you're actually in my mind modeling how this can healthily happen. Uh, or happen in a healthy way, um, which is there is a certain amount of deprogramming that, that needs to be done of of reprocessing that identity because religion really gets in the deep corners of your psyche, and it takes a long time, i.e., the rest of your life, to pull that stuff out. And and having these sort of groups and being able to do some of this deprogram can be healthy, but you have to realize with yourself when you're going too far. It's, it's like alcohol. Alcohol can be great. Like, what, is, what does alcohol do? Well, it, it loosens you up so that you're more likely to say, say what you're thinking, right? Which, when you're 20, is not a good thing. But when you're 40, that's a really good thing because you're, you're kind of locked in. So it serves a purpose. But if, if alcohol, you start self-medicating when you're lonely, when you're angry, you start, you start noticing it's taking over your life, you're putting on a lot of weight, oh, then you've got a problem. The same thing goes with this, this sort of deprogramming and processing through all that stuff in the church. Very important because I think it's not healthy just to walk away and say, I'm not going to deal with that. You got to deal with it, but you have to measure yourself and say, this is crossing into an unhealthy boundary. And emotionally there's, there's so much that goes on. And I think, I mean, one thing I have to remind myself of is that everyone's constantly seeking to work on identity. It's an, it's a thing that continues to evolve throughout our lives People inside of a religion are working on it. People outside of religion are working on it, sometimes in different ways. But I think, you know, realizing that that's just a human thing that we go through. But I think, you know, figuring out what do I do with the emotional experience of what can be kind of a traumatic thing as far as leaving is that was a really important thing for me in being able to set up a foundation for then building, you know, whatever I wanted my identity to look like next. Because, you know, you were talking a little bit about anger and different things like that. And I was just thinking, it really can be so helpful to seek assistance for certain things because we didn't learn in the church how to process emotion very well. We learned how to stuff it. And so I am a big fan of learning how to sit with all of our emotions and figure out what the information is about rather than just reacting to it aggressively or rather than stuffing it or being passive, but learning how to sit with it and figure out what is the information. Because I think every emotion has information that can be really helpful, but it's a process you have to learn. And what's great about therapy, for people who haven't ever been, 
you might think that a therapist is like a bishop who's just going to tell you what to do. But what happens is you're talking through something and a good therapist will ask you a question and it'll just crystallize in a way that of something you haven't thought about before. And that's where you're talking about that processing and sometimes getting a little bit of help on that of people who aren't going to just echo things back. This is the problem in a free society. You can go to a bar where people think exactly the way you do. And God damn it, like Google and Facebook and all these things are doing this to us in a really negative way. They predict what you like to do, and they're just going to show you the same porn all the time because they think that's what you want, right? But that's not good. What we need to do is break out of those paradigms some. And I know this last week, like I pissed a lot of people off when I came out against that Tom Phillips case, but there were people who were clearly jarred. There were people who were saying, how can you possibly... Be, be, because because there there gets to be this echo chamber effect, right? That we can all I fall prey to it. We all do all the time, and and unfortunately, it's easy to surround yourself with people who don't challenge you because it's culturally uncomfortable to challenge them. If you're at a party, you don't say, mm, mm, nah, "I don't think so," um, but a therapist might, and that's why you, you, you that's why you pay them to listen to your rant. Well, <laughs> and you also talked a few weeks ago. Oh, actually, no, it was your voices with Lindsay. About not. Oh, that was sad. Not, it was. Sad. I cried. It was. But no. But out not replacing, like, I don't know. I want to say profit, but like, you know, like saying, John Larson's perfect. So I'm going to only think what he thinks, or Lindsay's perfect. So I'm going to think the way she thinks. Like that's not healthy either. To no. replace, you know, your the people that used to be your, you know, spiritual gurus with another. I don't know. Maybe that is healthy. I don't know. And if you notice yourself doing, I mean, because again, sometimes there's no other option for people. It's like they do not yet know how to do it on their own. It's noticing sometimes that we're not necessarily where we ultimately want to be, but we're in a process of working towards that. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about that, that identity thing. I I think identity really comes in action. Um, in, in what we do. And we, in this culture, identify ourselves very much by two things, by what we do and what we consume. And um, unfortunately, the consumption is probably the less healthy, but you're pounded with that image all the time because of people make money by selling things. And, and we identify ourselves so much with that um, consumption. But I think the more you can move away to action. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you that I discovered recently. Yeah, it's good to go out there. Now the world's wide open to you. At least your Sundays are, right? So um, go out there and keep looking for things that you like to do. And you can try them all. There's no, there's no constraint. You can rent all sorts. Of, we, live in a, we live in a society that, that really sells ownership. You can rent everything in the world. Did you, did you know that? You can rent a bike or a skateboard or whatever. You can go down to REI. You can rent a tent. You can do whatever. And, and so you can try out all these things. Set yourself a year 52 Sundays of discovery and just do something different every single Sunday. And I'm going to tell you, here's my advice. And you guys are going to laugh at me. Everyone, I challenge everybody to go do something where you have to wear a uniform. (laughs) 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 Because I I discovered this about myself. Uh, Last year, I took up cycling and I went to REI and I just bought a crossover bike. And then I started cycling more. It was good exercise and I like getting out there. And then I realized I was chafing. So I went and I bought pants, right? But I bought the pants that would help me cycling. So I had on those little, uh, those little shorts. And then I realized that there was no place to put my wallet. But the cyclists have these great shirts that have these pockets back here. 
So, and of course, I have a helmet on, right? And then I realize that when you start riding for longer than 20 miles, like your, your, your hands start to absorb. So I got myself a little pair of gloves. And then I realized that it was better to ride with a group to help pace you. So I joined the Bonneville Cycling Club recently, and I'm riding with those guys. And I showed up on Sunday, and here I am. I'm in the full fucking garb, right? <laughs> I have everything, but everything makes sense. Like, I, there's a re. I bought it. I didn't like go in and say, "Suit me up, man." I bought. I bought everything bit by bit by bit. And then I looked around, and here were twenty or thirty other riders. We were we were doing a thirty mile ride last on Sunday. They were all, and 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 as you pulled up in the car, you could see them. You could spot them. And we could talk about the stuff that I suddenly found. I'm in an in-group, and there was something about being in the uniform that gave me a sense of identity where, I, where something clicked and said, wow, there's something going on here. There's a reason Mormons wear white shirts and ties, it, and, and the women wear those weird, silly um, uh, pastels. Jumpers. <laughs> Jumpers. Um, the, 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 um, the shirts are silly, too. I don't, I'm not trying to be sad. It's all silly. But even, and, and my, and my, my garb, my, um, cycling gear is really silly, right? Um, it, it feels like you're, you're, you have a diaper in your pants, right? Cause you, <laughs> cause you sit on that little saddle for a long time. But, but there's this identity that's there that I'm a cyclist now, right? And it's something that I can think about and I can read about and it gives me a sense of purpose. And I do it, I do it to be healthier. I do it to lose weight. I do it because I just, I love being out there and there's a sense of accomplishment that you, that you can push it a little bit further. And those sort of things, you can do, get that in a bowling league. You can get it in a book club. You can get it in all sorts of things and you can find what speaks to your soul. And how long did that take you? You know, from, from the day you bought your bike until you ended up, you know, being that tragic. Until I joined the cult. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, uh, it, it took about ten months. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. So, um, and you know, likewise, all the other things that you mentioned. I think <laughs> if I was going to give advice, um, my advice would be: you don't have to figure out who you are today or next month or even in a year. Right? You can spend. You can try bicycling and go. Wow, I'm really chafing a lot. I don't think I want to do this anymore. Right. right? And and then try kayaking and then try uh sitting like a couch potato on the couch all day sunday watching netflix that's a, that's a valid option too and i think the key in there is, is I, I didn't set out to be a cyclist <laughs> i i thought riding a bike sounded fun and it was a good way to get exercise and sort of give me something to do and then it it was a natural progression for me and and that's sort of the healthy way to do it. But you have to create those opportunities. And there's some great online resources. I know I've made fun of online resources, but like meetup.com is a great place to just say, oh, I like um, I like 20 year old chicks, and I like um, going for hikes, and I like puppies, and I like and and you can join all those different meetup groups, and 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 you can try them out. It's okay. To walk away from this stuff because that's another Mormon way of thinking. Very you, okay you to walk away. You put a ring away. on it. You get baptized, and you, that's your identity. Right. And that's that's not the way real life is, or yeah. at least a healthy life. Yeah, yeah, I I fully support that. I you know if you don't like it, give up. It's okay. You know, I, I it's not good advice for a job or a marriage, but for hobbies, you bet. Well, even a job. I mean, you don't want to skip every four or five months, but it's okay after two or three years to say, all right, where can I go next? Where does this, where does this job take me? And you're going to have more satisfaction that way. Yeah. I was just thinking, even in a job or a marriage, again, that's information. If you're starting to feel dissatisfied, that where can I evolve to, even if I stay in this job or if I stay in this marriage? 
And I think, yeah, letting things shift and change is a huge, that was a, something I think I'm still really scared of is, oh, it's okay for things to change. It's okay for me to like something one year and the next year to feel like I'm done with that. And that was my time with it. And it no longer feels needed. You know, I, I was having a great conversation with a friend last night. We were talking about, we agreed that our joy in life now comes from trying to find our center trying to find a balance. And for me, oftentimes that balance is between living in the immediate, you know, where you kind of lose that sense of time. You're just focused on what you're doing and then living in sort of an analytical intellectual. And, but that center that you're looking for, that balance point is moving all the time. And I think the, the model of religion is this is where the center is bang. And this is where you need to be. And if you're not feeling that's your center, there's something wrong with you. You're doing it wrong. You need to double down. Um, but I think in this, in this post religion, after the third transition, you realize that my center moved. I'm fully fine with the fact that two years from now, or even six months from now, I may be tired of riding my bicycle and I can sell it and go do something else. And that's okay. It's unlikely. I know, I know myself and I know I'm getting a little bit more stable. So I'll probably do it for a lot of several more years, but I don't have to. And then it's a choice on my, on my shoulders. It's something I own. And that's what's great is you get to learn how to trust those feelings for yourself. For like, sure. Why do I not like riding my bike anymore? Well, it doesn't even matter. You know, why, why do I feel dissatisfied with something? It may or you may not ever have the information or why do I like something? You may not ever know why, but you get the chance to just start to move with those experiences and see what happens. And, and in relationships where this can be a very healthy model is in, in the, in the church, if you're feeling dissatisfied with your marriage, for example, or you're feeling off or a little strange, it's bury it. Go talk to your bishop, read the scriptures. But in, in, a, in a more healthy environment, you create an environment of, say, vulnerability with yourself. Like me saying, I may not, I'm, I can wear silly pants because who cares what the fuck anybody else thinks anyway. And also being able to say that in a relationship, to be able to, to establish a relationship where you can talk about these sort of things, saying things are feeling a little off. It's not, you mean, what, what can we do about it? How do we, because we're not locked into these staid roles that make it the force us to say, if you're not, if it's not going down like this, it's, it's, it's not, it's not going perfectly. Okay. So the last element I want to talk about, it's pretty clear. I, I know a lot of people won't, they don't want to hear this, but your thoughts come from your brain. <laughs> what? Your brain is a piece of me that's going to decompose here shortly. And with that, your thoughts will all cease. Now, the, 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 the great element is you'll never experience your own death. Um, it's, it doesn't happen anywhere in the realm of what makes you you. So we're all going to die, and we're all going to die much quicker than we hope. Um, and because your thoughts are a product of your brain, I hate to break this to you, but when you die, that's it. It's all over. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I understand that too. Um, um, what matters in life? We do two things, and I kind of hinted this before in life. We take our identity from things we consume and things we produce. Everything that you consume, and don't get me wrong, I love consuming things, goes with you. Poof, it's gone in an instant. The only thing that matters, really, in the long run, is what you produce. And we have this gift of life, this short, short gift. And what we are a part of is this stream of humanity 
this thing that happened, the universe became self-aware in us. That's, that's um, spiritual. That's, that's brilliant. And we're here at the cutting edge of, of history. We're able to see things that, that and contemplate the universe itself, what we're part and parcel of, in a way that hasn't happened maybe ever. Um, and so you have this gift that you can produce things. So I think what gives us real meaning is in as much as we can contribute. And some of these other things we referred to, this sort of online consumptive thing, doesn't go anywhere. But you do have this, this thing that, that you, you can create and put out in the world. Now that doesn't mean that you'll be, none of us will be one of those people that gets written down in the history books. And that's, that's a rarity. And, and I think that's a, a, it's not real, right? Listen, if, if, if Adolf Hitler, second Nazi reference, hey, had never been born, I, I doubt much it would have changed. The, you know, the, 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 the SS would have risen up and, 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 cause these, these are products of huge forces at, at play here. But we all have individual, um, little parts in that. So what I invite, uh, what I found for me is meaning can come from that production. And these can be in simple ways, like being a parent or being a good partner in a relationship are things that you're producing rather than consuming that you're putting good out into the world. But we, we have an opportunity here and, and with, with, with white fields and those sort of things that I've been building, I've been working on is this transition from saying, all right, obviously the church is screwball. We all understand that now. Um, but, but the, the podcast not as important because there's people who are different phases of, of understanding that and discovering themselves. But what can we do? How can we make an impact? How can we create something that, that, that matters? And where, where, although I've disagreed with Tom Phillips and those, and those guys on, on some of the philosophical things, but they're trying to impact the world and that's a, that's a noble thing. So what I, I put the invite out saying the, the way to process through all this is find those ways to not only have an identity in cycling, but cycling dies with me. It doesn't live beyond me. I like cheese, but the cheese goes with me too, right? Um, but there are a few things that we can do that will make, make an impact and in, in real sort of ways. So I've framed it out that there's this war sort of between religion, which we've, we've explained how it works. It provides this model, but it sucks people into these, these, um, patterns that, that, that actually eliminate their creativity in this element, this sphere that I'm talking about, this ability to impact the world in a positive way. And they oftentimes evolve in ways that just become self-serving. They get more money, more power, more adherence, and it doesn't really, it imprisons people in this structure rather than create something that's, that's, that's beautiful. But there's so many things, um, art and science and intellectualism and poetry and, and literature that, that are out there that we can produce and we can participate even in a small way. And I think those things not only provide meaning in this stream of life that we have a short participation in, but provide us a strong sense of meaning. And when you, when you start doing those things yourself, even if you're not very good at it, it still, I think, gives that healing identity. And there's a good reason that a lot of therapists use things like, um, art, art. production and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I completely, totally agree with you, uh, 
very much, Lee. Um, so, uh, I, uh, because uh, this has happened in my life, and and so uh, in my life, um, I, I came to a maybe epiphany is too strong a word, but I I, I came to this idea um, maybe twenty or thirty years ago uh, that possibly you know I allowed myself to think that maybe I'm just worm food after I die right and and once you start to believe that that's a possibility then you have to say then what am I doing here right um, and so uh, for me as luck would have it um, this coincided with me discovering my great-great-grandfather who was a person of minor note in Utah, Utah history and so I read everything I could about my great-great-grandfather, and he was a great man and beloved by everybody that ever knew him. Everybody loved him. And, uh, and you know, there's a monument to him, you know, down in Utah County. And, and you know, I mean, that's 100 years ago. He died 100 years ago. You know, so he was building this legacy for himself 150 years ago, you know, when he met Brigham Young and, and those sorts of things. And and here I am, you know, a hundred odd years later, thinking about this great great grandfather of mine, and and to me it was very powerful because it's like, oh, I can do that, I can be that guy that's going to inspire my grandkids or my great grandkids or my great great grandkids, and um, you know, and and it happened twice to me because um, uh, I went to my grandfather's funeral. And my grandfather had lived in Alpine his whole life. And uh, I went to his funeral, and everybody loved my grandfather. And I had no idea how much everybody that ever met him loved him, right? And, and to me, he was just grandpa, right? But uh, everybody loved this guy. And so I'm thinking to myself, maybe I could do that. You know, maybe I could leave just this personal legacy, I, I don't even have to accomplish anything. Just leave this personal legacy that my uh, my grandfather and my great-great-grandfather uh, left for their children. Um, you know, that's probably something that I could be proud of if I wasn't rotting away in a hole someplace. You know? Right. There's a quote I like by uh, Carl Sagan, and it's, To live on in the hearts... Oh, sorry. To live in the hearts we leave behind is to never die. And I just... I've kind of that. That's what I'm getting at that's, because that's because what I think you know I'm I'm this. starting to build that relationship with my children, and and they quote me for instance you know and they will quote the dumbest things. Well, I I mean I think that they're just silly, you know, snarky remarks, and my kids are quoting me, and I'm going well that's that's kind of cool. And if if they take as much comfort in my legacy as I take in the comfort of my grandfather, then that's kind of cool for them which means it's probably worthwhile me doing. Right. Yeah. And it's amazing. You can think about your own life, and you'll probably be able to come up with a time somebody did something very small for you, reached out to you in a way um, that, was, that was the right thing at the right time. And, and in, 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 a, in a lot of ways, there isn't a wrong thing. You know, there's, there's times when we're all suffering in minor ways, and we see this suffering all around us that can be, um, alleviated very easily. You can go to the barber shop and look around the chairs, and by the way people are dressed or the way they're re- acting, you can see somebody who you know that haircut is going to be more expensive than your haircut. 
because it's a, a percentage of your income. And you can go pay for it. You won't notice. Like, it won't impact you. You can do all sorts of things, and there's been a few times in our lives that's happened, and they're so meaningful. I mean, just with a little bit, and it does take capital, but just with a little bit of resource, we can make a change in the world. And when you do those things, they, they just sort of light a, light a place in your soul. We evolved to be these social, caring, giving um, creatures, but there's so much message that says pull back from that. But we don't have to. And there's nothing more beautiful about giving as an atheist, as a nihilistic atheist, when you give, that it's it's out of it's out of pure selflessness, because there's 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 nothing else you get from it except from what comes from in here, and and that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> so, um, there are a lot of wonderful things happening out there that are um, just just. Anywhere you want to put your 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 money and your resource, there are, there there's there's people who have put the things up in place. Find the things you believe in. Throw a little bit of money their way. Throw some time their way. Help build and shape your your own things. When I set up Whitefields, the idea was okay. Here we did Mormon expression. What else can we do? And the real genesis behind the idea, as I've talked to the bigger donors and I've talked to the board of directors, is how do we set up an umbrella? to encourage other people to do things. So so what we really want to do, and I'm asking for all your help, is to figure out ways to make this change in the world. And the change in the world, although it's subtle, is not about bringing down the church. The change is helping people get to this other place, this place that we've been talking about tonight. And that's, that's what this is all about. That's what we're after. The only reason that I've come back because really the hardest part of my life is I don't give a rat's ass about Mormonism anymore. So the, the reason that keeps me working that is because I believe in these other things that this can buy. And that includes the, the, the benefit it gives to people and the benefit collectively we can do to build that other thing, that other thing that, 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 that we all have a calling to build. As always, I ask you to, to um, join us and push to the things that we're doing. Jenny, again, doing our, our, our therapy uh, we've got two groups going, a waiting list. Um, Jenny is actually helping us. Um, we, we're in the early stages, but, um, you and a, a partner, a Mormon therapist are going to be doing our couples therapy. And just on rumors of that group, um, we've, we've got a lot of interest. Can you tell us more about um, that? Yeah. So it'll be me and a therapist named James. So I'm single, female, not Mormon. He's male, married. And Mormon. And I gave him a bishop's interview to, to confirm that he was Mormon, right? You were there. You were present. John asked him all the questions. <laughs> Temple-worthy. He is good to go. So the two of us will run the group together, and it will be for mixed faith or mixed perspective couples who are working on dealing with differences in perspective. So maybe one person in the marriage is in the church, one's out. I've even had interest from people where both left and one is now, um, you know, an atheist, but one's still a theist and how to manage that. So that's, that's what we'll be working with. Yeah. So we've been building this, um, we, we call counseling services through, through Whitefields and what Whitefields is really trying to do is just Jenny does her business and all we're trying to do is facilitate it. Um, we don't give any direction. We're not a healthcare provider. That's you and the, and, and the, and the, um, uh, clients. Um, 
Oh, I, I announced today um, the next initiative that we're working on, or I'm, I'm exploring because I need, I can't do it myself. I need help. Um, not everybody needs or wants these workshops, these therapeutic services. But there are a lot of elements that we have hinted about tonight that religion sort of co-ops. Um, and when people leave fundamentalist religion, they're oftentimes left not knowing exactly how to tackle these, these things. How do you teach your kids ethics? How do you teach them about sex? How do you ne negotiate relationships after somebody's not telling you how to do it? Um, how, where do you go to find out how to bury somebody when you're not, when you don't want a religious service? Um, those sort of things, you know, like what do the secularists say about circumcision? You know, I'm, and I'm just talking about some of these things where they, they, they're not therapeutic, but they're still questions that, that we have where we were given all these answers. So I've, I've, I've named this so far the Better After Project, which is to create an online resource for these sort of non-therapeutic things that people are looking for, which would be kind of a clearinghouse website of resources, books that can help you as a parent know how to talk to your kids about death. Which was a difficult, which is a difficult thing after you lose. Religion's a cheat on death. Oh, grandma's just waiting up there and she's got a big teddy bear for you and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> but when, when you have to tell them that no, grandma's gone, that's a fucking tough conversation to have. And so what we want to have is these resources that people who don't rely on religion to be able to go to and say, how, how do I go about this? So I'm looking for people who are willing to help me build this, this, this online resource. And I know there's a lot of people out there who are listening to me right now who um, get sort of jealous or, or upset that we're always doing everything in Salt Lake City. This is something that can be done from any corner of the world. So I will be looking for a managing editor of the website and then contributors, people who can help collate and bring all these things in. And we're not necessarily talking about writing original content. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of other resources that we can just bring and aggregate together. So in the, in the spirit of what we're trying to do with, with, with Whitefields, with helping these religious transitions and finding this landing site for people who are looking for this, this is one of the next things we're, we're looking at building. Is that like your April 6th uh, meeting here? Did we, you want to talk about this? We, we will be talking about that April 6th. Is that we'll, what the date is? Yeah, uh, April 6th, I think, for a reminder, there's an open house here at, at 1030. We'll be talking about that and then some other things that are more local of how people can help um, contribute and what we can do. And I'm looking for a discourse. There's things that I want people to do, but there's, there are ideas that other people might have of how do we, how can, what, what, what floats your boat? What, what, um, can we take this structure that we have? Because the advantage that Whitefields have is we have lawyers and we have accountants and we have all this infrastructure. And what I want to do is be able to enable the creativity of you all. Um, and the, the collective energy of, of everyone to be able to help make this change that we're talking about in the world and building this post-religious uh, world that doesn't keep falling back into these cycles of addiction to religion. Awesome. Great. And one other thing about the groups, if anyone out there in listening land is interested in either a woman's group or is a man and interested in a group, because Tim's will be multi-gender, females, males, and whatever other genders there are. So multi-gender multi and then the couples group. If you're interested in any of those three, email Lindsay, correct? Lindsay's the one. You can either um, mail, you can, you can 
If you forget, you can go to mail at mormonexpression.com. It'll get to the right place. Lindsay at whitefieldseducational.org is, is, is her, is her email. And I would also say that we selected these as sort of the starter. Since we sort of contract with therapists, if there's any demand for anything in particular, then all we are is a facilitator to make that happen. So if we have enough demand for, let's say, a group, um, a, a workshop for just when couple leaves a church together, of reestablishing good bounds in a relationship, those are the sort of things that I'd be willing to do the footwork on and get going if there's demand for it. So if there's something out there that you all are interested in or want to see, um, then let, let us know and we'll try to facilitate it. Cool. Cool. All right. Thanks, everybody, to, for, for coming out tonight and searching for identity. This is really kind of a two-parter. Um, net, tomorrow we're going to talk more about what we can do and particularly what doesn't work, at least in my opinion, um, and, and, uh, or, or next, next, Tuesday. next Tuesday. So um, thanks again, everybody, and have a great night. Thanks. Thanks.